Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, January 18, 2024, we feature articles on testosterone treatment and fractures in men. Long-term resynchronization defibrillation therapy for heart failure. Azithromycin to prevent infant mortality in Burkina Faso. Oral simnotrelvir for adult patients with COVID-19. Understanding liability risk from healthcare AI tools. And the rise of house staff unions. A review article on syphilis during pregnancy and congenital syphilis. A case report of a woman with melanoma and fever and perspective articles on responding to medical errors, on looking ahead to state global budgets for health care, and on broken both ways. Testosterone Treatment and Fractures in Men with Hypogonadism by Peter Snyder from the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and colleagues. Testosterone treatment in men with hypogonadism improves bone density and quality, but trials with a sufficiently large sample and a long enough duration to determine the effect of testosterone on the incidence of fractures are needed. This trial examined the risk of clinical fracture in a time-to-event analysis. 5,204 middle-aged and older men with hypogonadism were randomly assigned to apply a testosterone or placebo gel daily. After a median follow-up of 3.19 years, a clinical fracture had occurred in 3.5% of participants in the testosterone group and 2.46% of participants in the placebo group. The fracture incidence also appeared to be higher in the testosterone group for all other fracture endpoints. Among middle-aged and older men with hypogonadism, testosterone treatment did not result in a lower incidence of clinical fracture than placebo. The fracture incidence was numerically higher among men who received testosterone than among those who received placebo. Matisse Grossman from the University of Melbourne, Australia, and Bradley Annawalt from the University of Washington School of Medicine, Seattle, write in an editorial that in the trial by Snyder and colleagues, the increased incidence of clinical fractures in the testosterone group was a surprising finding. How do we explain it? First, fracture incidence increased immediately at the onset of treatment a finding that would be too rapid to be due to effects on bone. The rapid divergence between trial groups is more likely to be related to behavioral changes in the participants randomized to testosterone, perhaps affecting behaviors such as engaging in physical activities associated with fracture risk. Second, there was no substantial between-group difference in the incidence of typical osteoporotic clinical fractures of the spine, hip, humerus, and wrist in this trial. Ankle and rib fractures that are typically associated with trauma accounted for the majority of the excess fractures in the testosterone group. What are the clinical implications of the trial? The findings do not apply to men with hypogonadism due to identifiable disease of the hypothalamic-pituitary-testicular axis who need testosterone for normal function. 
However, a potential increase in fracture risk should be considered in the decision-making about testosterone therapy for men with low serum testosterone concentrations due to aging or obesity. Finally, men at high risk for fragility fracture should receive osteoporotic drug therapy with proven anti-fracture benefit independent of any consideration of testosterone therapy. Major concerns about cardiovascular and prostate risks that are associated with testosterone therapy have been reduced in the past several years, and in selected men, evidence regarding potential benefits such as diabetes prevention and improved mobility has emerged. Ironically, the trial by Snyder and colleagues identified a potential unanticipated fracture risk with testosterone treatment, which highlights the importance of future randomized controlled trials of the effects of exogenous testosterone on fractures. Long-Term Outcomes of Resynchronization Defibrillation for Heart Failure by John Sapp from Dalhousie University Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. The resynchronization defibrillation for ambulatory heart failure trial, RAFT, showed a greater benefit with respect to mortality at five years among patients who received cardiac resynchronization therapy, CRT, than among those who received implantable cardioverter defibrillators, ICDs. The investigators now report on the effect of CRT on long-term survival. Patients with a reduced ejection fraction, a widened QRS complex, and NYHA class 2 or 3 heart failure were randomly assigned to receive either an ICD alone or a CRT defibrillator. 1,050 patients were included in the long-term survival trial. The median duration of follow-up was 7.7 years, and the median duration of follow-up for those who survived was 13.9 years. The primary outcome of death from any cause occurred in 76.4% of patients assigned to the ICD group and in 71.2% of patients assigned to the CRT defibrillator group. The time until death appeared to be longer for those assigned to receive a CRT defibrillator than those assigned to receive an ICD. Acceleration factor 0.8. A secondary outcome event of a composite of death from any cause, heart transplantation, or implantation of a ventricular assist device occurred in 77.7% of patients in the ICD group and in 75.4% in the CRT defibrillator group. Among patients with a reduced ejection fraction, a widened QRS complex, and NYHA class 2 or 3 heart failure, the survival benefit associated with receipt of a CRT defibrillator as compared with ICD appeared to be sustained during a median of nearly 14 years of follow-up. In an editorial, Lynn Warner-Stevenson and Jay Montgomery from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Nashville, write that the improved clinical trajectory for patients with mild heart failure 
at a median of nearly 14 years after CRT implantation in the RAFT trial is remarkably similar to the benefits observed in the cohort of asymptomatic patients who received enalapril in the previously reported landmark SOLVED studies of left ventricular dysfunction trial. Although survival among patients with heart failure symptoms was longer with enalapril than with placebo during the initial SOLVED trial period, survival at 12 years among those assigned to receive enalapril had declined to approximately that of patients who were assigned to receive placebo. In contrast, among the patients who were asymptomatic, survival was not longer in the enalapril group than in the placebo group during the three-year trial period, but survival was significantly longer among these patients for the duration of the 12-year follow-up period, despite the widespread use of ACE inhibitors after the trial period ended. On the basis of the results of SOLVED and other landmark trials in patients with heart failure, the multiple medications recommended for patients who have symptomatic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction are now recommended also for patients with pre-heart failure, stage B, before symptom onset. Despite the fact that the patients in RAFT had only mild heart failure symptoms at the time of their enrollment in the trial, almost 80% had died by 15 years. Because CRT offers remarkable improvements in functional capacity, quality of life, and survival, the principles of providing earlier treatment for heart failure might now include CRT particularly as technology improves. CRT initiation could be accelerated after a diagnosis of left bundle branch block is made in patients with a low left ventricular ejection fraction, which is less likely to increase with the use of medical therapy alone. With increasing use of biomarker screening to identify patients with asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction, we should also advance our use of effective therapies with the hope that we will see more time with good quality survival. Azithromycin during routine well-infant visits to prevent death by Ali Sia from the Centre de Recherche en Santé de Nuna, Burkina Faso, and colleagues. Mass distribution of azithromycin to children 1 to 59 months of age has been shown to reduce childhood all-cause mortality in some sub-Saharan African regions, with the largest reduction seen among infants younger than 12 months of age. This trial evaluated whether the administration of azithromycin at routine infant health care visits would be effective in preventing death. The trial involved 32,877 infants from three regions of Burkina Faso and compared a single dose of azithromycin with placebo, administered during infancy, 5 to 12 weeks of age. The primary endpoint was death before six months of age. 82 infants in the azithromycin group and 75 infants in the placebo group died before six months of age, hazard ratio 1.09. 
the absolute difference in mortality was 0.04 percentage points. There was no evidence of an effect of azithromycin on mortality in any of the pre-specified subgroups, and no evidence of a difference between the two trial groups in the incidence of adverse events. In this trial conducted in Burkina Faso, the investigators found that administration of azithromycin to infants through the existing healthcare system did not prevent death. Oral Simnotrelvir for Adult Patients with Mild to Moderate COVID-19 by Bin Tao from the China-Japan Friendship Hospital, Beijing, China, and colleagues. Simnotrelvir is an oral 3-chymotrypsin-like protease inhibitor that has been found to have in vitro activity against SARS-CoV-2 and potential efficacy in a Phase 1b trial. In this Phase 2-3 trial, 1,208 patients who had mild to moderate COVID-19 and onset of symptoms within the past three days were randomly assigned to receive simnotrelvir plus ritonavir or placebo twice daily for five days. Among patients in the modified intention-to-treat population who received the first dose of trial drug or placebo within 72 hours after symptom onset, the time to sustained resolution of COVID-19 symptoms was significantly shorter in the simnotrelvir group than in the placebo group, 180.1 hours versus 216 hours. On day 5, the decrease in viral load from baseline was greater in the simnotrelvir group than in the placebo group. Mean difference, minus 1.51 blog 10 copies per milliliter. The incidence of adverse events during treatment was higher in the simnotrelvir group than in the placebo group, 29% versus 21.6%. Most adverse events were mild or moderate. Early administration of simnotrelvir plus ritonavir shortened the time to the resolution of symptoms among adult patients with COVID-19 without evident safety concerns. Syphilis Complicating Pregnancy and Congenital Syphilis A review article by Irene Stafford from McGovern Medical School at UT Health, Houston, and colleagues. Congenital syphilis was first described by Gaspar Torella in 1497 and continues to cause major negative consequences worldwide. After a steady decline in U.S. cases of primary and secondary syphilis after 1990, which led to hopes of its elimination, rates hit a nadir in 2001. Unfortunately, the rates have subsequently increased among men and women of reproductive age, as well as among infants. And in 2021, the rate of congenital syphilis in the United States was the highest it has been in nearly 30 years. Congenital syphilis usually results from transplacental passage of treponema pallidum to the fetus during disseminated maternal infection. Less frequently, neonatal infection occurs through exposure to syphilitic genital lesions at the time of delivery. The only antimicrobial agent proven to be both safe and efficacious for the treatment of syphilis during pregnancy is parenteral benzathine penicillin G, 
administered intramuscularly according to the clinical stage. Ultrasonography is the most commonly used method to examine a fetus for evidence of congenital syphilis. Ultrasonographic evidence of intrauterine infection can be detected after 18 weeks of gestation, when the fetus is able to mount an immune response to T. pallidum infection. Elimination of perinatal syphilis is possible with timely diagnosis and treatment during pregnancy. New diagnostic approaches that are capable of detecting T. pallidum infection in the newborn are needed. The impact of untreated syphilis on maternal and neonatal health outcomes is profound. This review discusses the manifestations and effects of syphilis during pregnancy and mother-to-child transmission. A 57-year-old woman with melanoma and fever. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Amir Moharab and colleagues. A 57-year-old woman with resected stage 3C cutaneous melanoma was admitted to the hospital because of fever. Four months earlier, bleeding developed from a lesion on the right side of the scalp. A diagnosis of stage 3C melanoma had been made. Molecular profiling had identified the BRAF V600E mutation. Three months later, the patient was evaluated in the oncology clinic for initiation of treatment with a combination of dibrafenib, a BRAF inhibitor, and trametinib, a MEK inhibitor, as targeted therapy for melanoma. The patient felt well, and the surgical wound had healed. One day after the initiation of treatment with dibrafenib and trametinib, fever and nausea developed. BRAF-MEK inhibitor therapy was temporarily discontinued, and treatment with acetaminophen and ibuprofen was started. Fever and nausea resolved after one day. Once the patient had one day without recurrent fever after the antipyretic medications had been stopped, treatment with dibrafenib and trametinib was resumed. Two weeks later, another episode of fever occurred that rapidly resolved after brief discontinuation of treatment with the BRAF MEK inhibitors. At the time of the current admission, the patient had high fevers that persisted for four days after discontinuation of treatment with the BRAF MEK inhibitors. Evaluation and laboratory results revealed hypotension, acute kidney injury, and acute liver injury. Among all the possible diagnoses in this patient, drug-induced liver injury was the most important consideration, given the mixed cholestatic and hepatocellular pattern of liver injury. In addition, there was an absence of evidence supporting an alternative diagnosis, such as infection or sarcoidosis. The most likely cause of this patient's syndrome was drug-induced liver injury resulting from BRAF-MEK inhibitor therapy. What do trainees want? The Rise of House Staff Unions, a Medicine and Society article on medical training today by Lisa Rosenbaum, a national correspondent for the journal. In December 2020, when brand-new COVID vaccines were in limited supply, Stanford University Medical Center created an allocation system for its employees. Their plan had an unfortunate omission. Despite trainees' critical frontline service, 
Only seven of the 1,300 employees who were included in the first phase were house staff. The allocation algorithm turned out to have a glitch that was quickly corrected, allowing most residents to be vaccinated in the first phase, although not before the house staff staged a lunchtime walkout. Philip Sossenheimer, a resident, now a fellow in palliative care, who helped lead ensuing unionization efforts, noted people realized that collective action can work. Although Dr. Rosenbaum suspects that Stanford made an innocent mistake that it would have corrected regardless of the walkout, leaders couldn't comment during contract negotiations. The error catalyzed unionization. Trainees wanted salaries that were commensurate with the cost of living, access to on-call rooms for residents with disabilities, more lactation space, and vouchers for post-call rides. But for Sassenheimer, unionization was less about any specific demand than about a formal process for negotiating with management to begin with. Traditionally, trainees relied on program directors to advocate for them. Sassenheimer and his peers wanted a seat at the table. Although broader unionization is escalating nationally, trainees' efforts reflect medicine-specific concerns with unknown consequences for education and patient care. What's driving this movement? Can unions meaningfully address trainees' concerns? And what's at stake in the process? Understanding Liability Risk from Using Healthcare Artificial Intelligence Tools, a health law, ethics, and human rights article by Michelle Mello and Neil Guha from Stanford Law School, California. Optimism about the explosive potential of artificial intelligence to transform medicine is tempered by worry about what it may mean for the clinicians being augmented. One question is especially problematic because it may chill AI adoption. When AI contributes to patient injury, who will be held responsible? Some attorneys counsel healthcare organizations with dire warnings about liability and dauntingly long lists of legal concerns. Unfortunately, liability concern can lead to overly conservative decisions, including reluctance to try new things. Yet, older forms of clinical decision support provided important opportunities to prevent errors and malpractice claims. Given the slow progress in reducing diagnostic errors, not adopting new tools also has consequences and at some point may itself become malpractice. Liability uncertainty also affects AI developers' cost of capital and incentives to develop particular products thereby influencing which AI innovations become available and at what price. To help healthcare organizations and physicians weigh AI-related liability risk against the benefits of its adoption, these authors examine the issues that courts have grappled with in cases involving software error and what makes them so challenging. Because the signals emerging from case law remain somewhat faint, the authors conducted further analysis of the aspects of AI tools that elevate or mitigate legal risk. 
Drawing on both analyses, the authors provide risk management recommendations focusing on the uses of AI in direct patient care with a human-in-the-loop, since the use of fully autonomous systems raises additional issues. Responding to Medical Errors Implementing the Modern Ethical Paradigm a perspective on the fundamentals of medical ethics by Thomas Gallagher from the University of Washington Medicine, Seattle, and Alan Kachalia from Johns Hopkins Medicine, Baltimore. Responding to a medical error is daunting. Clinicians may experience the emotions every human feels when something has gone wrong. Remorse, frustration, embarrassment, and fear. Traditionally, recommendations regarding responding to medical errors focused mostly on whether to disclose mistakes to patients. Over time, empirical research, ethical analyses, and stakeholder engagement began to inform expectations, which are now embodied in Communication and Resolution Programs, CRPs, for how healthcare professionals and organizations should respond not just to errors, but any time patients have been harmed by medical care, adverse events. CRPs require several steps, quickly detecting adverse events, communicating openly and empathetically with patients and families about the event, apologizing and taking responsibility for errors analyzing events, and redesigning processes to prevent recurrences, supporting patients and clinicians, and proactively working with patients toward reconciliation. In this modern ethical paradigm, any time harm occurs, clinicians and healthcare organizations are accountable for minimizing suffering and promoting learning. However, implementing this ethical paradigm is challenging especially when the harm was due to an error. Today, in the wake of all harmful errors, bioethical principles require that clinicians and healthcare organizations demonstrate transparency, compassion, and accountability, and proactively meet patient needs. These steps would not only increase trust in the healthcare system, but would also help it improve. Looking Ahead to State Global Budgets for Healthcare, a perspective by Suhas Gandhi from Brigham and Women's Hospital, Boston, and colleagues. Fourteen years after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the value-based care movement is facing hard truths. An evaluation of 49 of the first payment and care delivery models implemented by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, showed that the vast majority haven't achieved the goal of reducing health care spending. The Congressional Budget Office reported that, despite its initial projection that these models would result in nearly $3 billion in net savings between 2011 and 2020, CMMI actually increased federal spending by $5.4 billion over its first decade. Although this analysis excluded the Medicare Shared Savings Program, a signature initiative that has produced moderate savings, the findings are sobering. In the wake of these disappointing results, CMMI is advancing new approaches. In September 2023, 
the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced an ambitious model. The state's advancing all-payer health equity approaches and development. AHEAD. The AHEAD model moves toward population-based payment at the state level and has three goals, curbing cost growth, improving population health, and advancing health equity. States can now apply to participate in this voluntary model. AHEAD will employ several strategies to achieve its goals, each of which has both promising features and limitations. First, AHEAD will use global budgets as the primary strategy for curbing cost growth. Second, AHEAD seeks to improve population health by elevating primary care. Third, AHEAD's strategy for advancing health equity includes requirements for hospitals to develop health equity plans, collect demographic data, and screen for social needs. Broken Both Ways, a perspective by Samuel Slavin from Brigham and Women's Hospital, Boston. Tiny shards of glass littered Stella's ex-boyfriend's basement apartment, and she still felt them all over her skin, even behind her ears. Most of her doctors thought it was psychosis, a byproduct of crystal meth, now hardened into a fixed delusion. But it could have been true. Her ex would smash light bulbs out of rage. Yet whether it was true or delusion might not matter. Stella had lived with pain since high school. I got it in the head point blank, she said. It was one of those seriously hard-hitting 1980s paintball guns, already vintage in 99. Before the accident, she was preparing for Olympic trials in field hockey. Overnight, these aspirations disappeared as she desperately sought relief. By the time Dr. Slavin met her, Stella's fix was no longer the oxy or the heroin, which she had kicked, or even the meth, which she hadn't. It was the act of injecting itself. It was about taking control, like cutting, she said. And it was injecting that sent Staph aureus to her heart, causing endocarditis, and eating holes in her mitral and aortic valves. Stella was told she would die without heart surgery, but no one would operate on an active drug user. A few weeks later, Dr. Slavin met her in the clinic as her cardiologist. She sat on the exam table, slender, in a loose-fitting orange hoodie. What had happened in the hospital was still a blur, so Dr. Slavin drew pictures of the heart showing the hole in Stella's aortic valve and the even larger tear in her mitral valve. So now, she said, now I can say my heart's broken both ways. Afterwards, Dr. Slavin held onto the pieces of Stella's story, finding himself looking at his phone each morning, expecting to learn that she was admitted overnight and needed surgery. Many public health advocates now endorse decriminalization of all drugs when possessed in quantities intended for personal use. Yet even if we change our laws, we will still need to confront the criminalization that we have internalized. The widespread idea that someone like Stella is morally different from the active smoker who needs surgery for lung cancer or the daily sugary soda drinker with diabetes listed for a kidney transplant. 
Patients are not present for the conversations of the endocarditis team, but their stories and voices need to be represented. Real human narratives might make us question what we mean when we say, get clean, might make us ask, what is so unclean about injecting through alcohol-swabbed skin with sterile needles? Why do we reserve clean for total abstinence? And when we do so, are we making a medical judgment or a moral one? Just a few pieces of a life story might be enough to make us question the biases we learned in medical school, on the wards, or out in the world. In our images in clinical medicine, a 55-year-old woman presented with a one-year history of skin darkening on her face. Two years earlier, she had started applying a skin lightening cream containing hydroquinone to her face daily to treat melasma. On physical examination, bluish-brown patches with background erythema and telangiectasias were observed on the cheeks, nasal bridge, and perioral region, with lesser involvement on the forehead. Dermoscopy of the affected areas revealed hyperchromic pinpoint macules. Skin biopsy revealed extracellular deposition of yellow-brown pigments in the dermis. A diagnosis of exogenous ochronosis was made. Ochronosis is a hyperpigmentation disorder that results from the accumulation of ochre-colored deposits in tissue. It is deemed endogenous when related to alcaptonuria and exogenous when related to the use of skin-lightening agents. Exogenous ochronosis is challenging to treat and may not be reversible. In another image, a 59-year-old man presented with a four-week history of severe itching in his pubic region. On physical examination, small brown nits and mobile crab-shaped lice were seen attached to the shafts and bases, respectively, of pubic hairs. Dermoscopic examination showed nits that had a cap, or operculum, on one end, and six-legged lice ingesting blood. See the video at NEJM.org. A diagnosis of pubic lice was made. Pubic lice are parasites that are most commonly transmitted through sexual contact. The life cycle of the organism involves stages as a nit, or egg, nymph, and adult louse. An adult louse will die within 48 hours without a blood feeding. Treatment with topical lindane, the only lice-killing medication available locally, was given. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.